Hello and welcome to Spadework, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them. You are listening to our first episode of our second season. And what an episode it is. This is a special crossover between spadework and European alternatives. Over the past six months, our co-host Daniel Gutierrez had been a fellow at European Alternatives Academy of Migrant Organizing, a structure dedicated to bringing together migrant organizers and activists across Germany in order to talk about shared organizational and movement-building problems in the hope that we can develop a lasting forum of collective co-research and co-learning. As part of this forum, fellows were asked to collectively forge a toolbox addressing shared problems they highlighted and uncovered over the course of the fellowship. This episode functions as a contribution to that toolbox that you can find on Instagram and in the episode notes. In this episode, Daniel talks to Academy of Migrant Organizing Fellow Berena Yogaraja about the difficulties of working across difference, allyship, comradeship, and problems that often surface through identity-based politics. Berena has been involved in grassroots political organization for almost a decade. She is currently based in Cologne, Germany, and is a member of Interventionistische Linke, an extra-parliamentary, emancipatory left organization. She was most recently involved in Tatort Ports, a campaign aimed at securing the conviction of a right-wing politician who attempted to murder youth for racist reasons in Cologne, in a scenario not unlike that of the Trayvon Martin murder in the United States. She is mostly involved in anti-racist struggles and generally concerns herself with the strategies of identity politics and grappling with the tension of universality and difference. Over the course of the episode, Danielle and Berena reflect on the tension produced when politics begin and end with identity, rather than the destinations we'd like to reach from different starting points. While acknowledging the importance of having safe spaces within the ecology of the left, Berina emphasizes that spaces of struggle are those spaces where discomfort is produced by the differences we encounter and struggle with towards common horizons of emancipation. Drawing from personal experience and encounters, she cautions that too much of an emphasis on self-distinction can lead to self-referential navel-gazing rather than the cross-movement development of power we desperately need. It is this underscoring of contingency that Daniel appreciates throughout the discussion. For him, and those of us at Spadework, it is critical to understand that the ways in which discourses, in this case those about and around identity, connected to practice 
are always contingent and politically negotiated. That is to say, what practices are generated through discourses of identity in Berkeley, California, might be very different from those connections in Barrio Logan, San Diego, or Neukölln, Berlin. In the same way that the practices articulated to Marxism look different from context in, say, the 1960s, so too must post-Marxist discourses like those around identity. Such an understanding of the contingent relation between discourse and practice allow the two to agree that the politics developed out of discourses of identity are not immune to authoritarian, moralistic or dogmatic practices, and it is such connections that make power impossible to build. They will also talk about the question if Danielle should become a TikTok influencer. Feel free to leave your opinion on that important question on Twitter. With no further ado, I will give the mic to Danielle and Verena. Welcome, Verena. Um, yeah, for today's format, just to go over it, we're going to ask each other questions about uh, organizing and organizing across difference and racism in today's movement world. And um, I would like to begin by asking you how you came to be politicized. Yeah, hi. Thanks hi. for having me, Daniel. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, I got a scholarship from Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung when I started my bachelor, which I did in Tübingen, which is in Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany. Mm-hmm. And I came from Western Germany, so from the Ruhrgebiet, a very urbanized area. So I had a there culture shock um, when I started my life in southern Germany. Plus, I got the, by the scholarship, um, I had the opportunity to have like political building, so political education opportunities. Why did you experience a culture shock? I don't think I've ever been to a place where people are more German, actually. So <laughs> what does is, that mean? <laughs> it is that, you know, they, Tübingen is a small place, a very small place. 33% of the people who live there are either students or employed by the university. And the people who go to university there in a large part come from all the even smaller tiny villages around mm-hmm. so um it is people so so it's like a melting pot of small town germany <laughs> yes, which makes it hyper german because it's like white people coming from white cities from their white lives being mostly of course having an academic background i studied psychology so the stakes are high to get the permission to study there and it's all the Annalenas who have rich parents and get to university from their perspective of life and have no reason to open up to the new place because they just, whenever it's weekend or something, they just go home to their village friends <laughs> they've sticked around with the last 10 years. And so I didn't feel like people are open-minded. I felt people are very judgy. 
I felt they don't know people like me. They don't know people who talk like me. They think I felt like they were treating me like an alien or some ethnologic and you know they make me repeat sentences because they thought i was speaking funnily and so on and whenever i, was, I thought okay we're studying university hey everyone come over bring your own beer let's get drunk and then go party people wouldn't show up and even if they did they show up like trying not to eat because they think if they eat at my place, they have to invite me to their place and make me, so they don't want this. So they come, sit around politely, of course, with their heterosexual partners, like my guy friends brought along their girlfriends and the other way. And of course, they politely, when it was about maybe we're going to have party, they were like, oh no, let's, we have to do Netflix and chill and just be very old people. Oh. Um, and that was how I spent two and a half years into being very lonely. Living the dream. Living the dream, but now that all this only makes it easier for me to explain how did I get politicized? How not? Being a brown woman <laughs> there <laughs> with my background, I um, and then having the scholarship, I um, got the skills to understand my situation politically and socially, understanding what um, that um, what my what my normal is isn't normal to them. And mm -hmm. that what I was actually uh, experiencing was uh, racism, was experience of class, was and so on. And um, that's how I radicalized in identity politics. That's mm -hmm. um, that's how I stepped. Uh, that's what that was my first step into becoming a political person. Mm -hmm. And then, what was your, your your trajectory? Where are you at now? How did you go from there to where you're at now? Um. You know, I I was raised in uh, churches, like if in um, in uh, how do you call it evangelical? Is that the word? Yeah. Churches. So, um, I what I know is how you can have like a whole view of how the world functions, and an experience I've made um, among the church people was that. Um, me asking questions made people feel uncomfortable <laughs> because sometimes um, questions show contradictions, right? And contradictions you have yourself. And if you're not able to solve them, it gets very uneasy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, that's the experience I made among those, my fellows in all this identical political um, contexts that when I was, when I tried to figure out the strategy, like where do we want to go? What is What are we hoping for if we do this, that, and that way? Um, if we stop talking to white people, how will things change? <laughs> mm -hmm. If we don't feel responsible for anything else but our community, where, how, how does that take us somewhere? And also, checking on privileges and hoping that people want to be good people and they finally understand racism is the one thing but what about our ideological uh, enemies like there are people who who know <laughs> and they still don't care they really do want to eliminate us and asking those questions made them and me uneasy again it was very uncomfortable and so i was wondering how can i 
how do we really change something? That was what 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 was uh, what drives me. Like, um, um, I I I was one of those normal people we want to reach nowadays. You know, I know my parents. I know how I thought that the parliamentary uh, democracy I live in is something. It's a great thing, and that if you have majorities, you win, and that. Um, of course, it's normal to ask me where I came from because I look different. Like all these patterns, of course, they were inside of me. And um, I and still I was able to become what I've uh, become. And I was wondering, okay, how do we actually change things and take everyone along who's, who, who might be one, like who, whose heart is beating at the same place and um, who might share the vision but isn't uh, a perfect activist yet? So, and that's um, how I, um, I went to places where I felt I could pose these questions. I was among people who um, thought the same way. And that's how I, for example, ended up with a lot of uh, people from different movements and also from EL and um, find, that's how I found other political spaces um, where I'm active right now. Fascinating. Cool. You you want to ask me a question now, or yeah, what about you? you know, <laughs> I, as I mentioned in the beginning, we got to know each other through this transnational school of activism, mm -hmm. and we were wondering how we can talk about these issues of race and the way we have relationships. Right? Do we want submissive allies or do we want comrades? What is it? How do we think we should be with people? That's when I told you that in this conversation, I would love to get to know you better. So tell me now, how did you get politicized? <laughs> yeah, so um, I grew up in a very different context. I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Northern Mexico, but I had family on both sides of the border. And so like, and also grew up in a kind of, um, I grew up in a Catholic background, but still like, you know, this uh, idea of, um, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount, etc. Like all of that was pretty important. Like, you know, like blessed are the meek, etc. And um, yeah, I mean, I would cross the, the border to visit family. And obviously you have one side of the border and it looks one way and you cross into the other side of the border and it looks another way. And then questions immediately are like, why does it look this way and not the other way? And um which then just led to very, like, kind of the same thing where it's like, I would ask people, like, I don't know, like, why does it look this way? And then questions would usually end up being, like, pretty racist or just illogical. Or like, why is it that that guy's labor costs that much on that side of the border, but this much on this side of the border, and it's the same body? <laughs> like, mm. this doesn't make any sense to me. And so... um that meant I voted for Barack Obama and was super excited and thought that we were about to get Swedish style social democracy. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it was a bummer immediately afterwards because like, um, I mean, the crisis unfolded and that wasn't his fault that, uh, you know, the housing bubble popped at that moment. But um I was pretty upset about uh, how tuition fees were going up at the universities and the colleges. Um, and I felt a bit betrayed because it was like the youth were one of the big factors that he got elected. And then it felt like we were being asked to pay the bill for the crisis. And it wasn't our fucking fault. <laughs> 
And so then as uh, time went on, the, the, the tuition fees and whatnot got higher and higher. And then Occupy happened. Well, right before Occupy, I went to, to university and I was going through like an identity crisis. And so I read a bunch. Uh, I did Latin American studies. What is an identity crisis? Uh, that's a very conservative way of saying that uh, uh, that basically I wasn't I felt disassociated from the the way or from the life that I had lived previously and was wondering where do I fit how do I fit I would say put it in those terms and in this kind of disassociation process, I was trying to reassociate with an imagined past that I had um, of being Mexican and whatnot. And um, I studied Latin American studies and met some really brilliant um, scholars that were involved in like the Chicano movement in the United States that were involved um, in Nicaragua in the 1980s that were um, uh, exiles from Chile and um you know that obviously changed me because i was like this is crazy and this actually explains things a lot better than the the bullshit i was told growing up um and then suddenly occupy happened and then i went to that and i was like this is really crazy um and then afterwards joined an anarchist cadre um and then we did a lot of political readings together and that explained some things more and um and then I really cut my teeth when I joined the union and actually tried to change something. And then a bunch more questions came out of that and a lot more commitment came out of that because we were able to change some things. And that was like life changing to actually have this uh, ability to transform your environment and the structures that define it. Yeah, <laughs> that was fucking wild. But at the same time, I was like, wow, that was super hard. And there were so many problems that came along with that. And that's kind of the the a long story short of that process, I would say. Yeah, we should keep it short because there are a bunch of more questions that would be very interesting to hear your answers of. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, so you were you you were saying that um, you know you 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 left your Christian church and then it felt like you went into a new church there where people were feeling uncomfortable, and so. What organizational processes that you participate help you identify like the problems of organizing across difference, if that makes any sense? I don't know if that makes sense, but let me just, I'll just <laughs> give you what I think. <laughs> um, I mean, you were involved in these different things and you said certain questions arose, right? And it was like, okay, well, we kind of have to talk to white people, et cetera. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, what 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 problems like how did they how did they come up in what contexts? Oof. So many layers. Uh, the one is whenever there are easy answers, I feel the answers must be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So whenever somebody can just answer the question by yes and no, and it's not a very big questions like not questions. Uh, like, hey, do people deserve same rights? Of course, they're, it's very easy to answer. But um, I felt the, society and societal change is more complex than what people are thinking about right now. And that um, I, I, was, I felt like there was a lack of 
honesty. You know, sometimes, and it's very okay to to do things and to say things like that, but sometimes people who make the experience of structural powerlessness, of course, it's very nice to feel powerful sometimes and to have mm -hmm. the power to um, the definitions and to define the spaces where we're at and so on. And mm -hmm. I think that's the one thing to say, it's very, it was very important to have the self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. But self-efficacy and empowerment are two, diff two different things, mm -hmm. I'd say. So the one is an individual ex um, experience in a, in a specific context, whereas empowerment really means that you, that there is a structural um, capacity to change other structures. Yes, that's what I'd say. I'd say mm -hmm. that is it. And it means to really take away, take back and to to own, to take ownership over something uh, that leads you to self-determination. And self-determination mm -hmm. is never something individual. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think this kind of conversations were not possible with the, with the people I started hanging out with at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt the, the strength of the contexts that were very, let me call it dogmatic, um, mm -hmm. about their identities mm -hmm. was that they were eradicating uh, contradictions and also that it was not about a utopia, a vision, something passionate but it was more about um resting after trauma um mm -hmm. having the possibility to to take a break and to focus on yourself and um it was more of the, the first moment after revelation you know like it, it your eyes were opened you find yourself in a situation and then it was a very specific situation in a political process that uh, was like that was the use of these mm -hmm. the people and the context i was hanging out with and well, yeah uh what what kind of uh practices define this kind of self-efficacy that you were talking about like the ability to define things like how did that that look like um okay, in practice so i think um first level identity politics blah blah can be something like hanging out with a bunch of people that have also race make experience of racism mm -hmm. considering you as the same among difference and not knowing what that means and how to solve it <laughs> mm -hmm. or what to do with it. It means that um, what keeps you together is the same enemy and being mad about the, that enemy, <laughs> like hating mm -hmm. white, straight, cis, academic guys and so on. Able bodies that you, you know what, you name it. That's a, that's a very easy target. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, that's okay. It's okay. Like, I'm, not, I'm not saying any of that is wrong, right? Um, I'm just saying it doesn't really take me anywhere I want to go. That's what I'm know. saying. That's basically all that it's that um, I'm not saying that's morally wrong or I don't understand. Before I start like um, discussing what is wrong about that kind of politics, there are there are so many other things that are really a bother I, I yeah. prefer to talk about. So my target is not all those um, BIPOC groups that do what they do, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that I felt this is not taking me anywhere. And so giving, like being able to name ourselves the way we want to, to dress the way we want to, and to like to encourage ourselves in taking back what we felt we have to be ashamed of and talking about situations and being understood. These are all very, very, very important processes, but that is not all like that is, that is, um, that's what I mean. This is something, this is a place of rest, you know, that's where I can sit, where I can um, gain back power or um, charge my batteries or something that's what I can do there but that is not the place of struggle and mm-hmm. struggling always means to leave the comfort zone and that's um, mm-hmm. that's how I felt um, I sometimes felt like we're lacking the courage or we're not even trying to be better off we are we are still in the we are still weeping. We are still very sad about the pain that we've experienced. And it's very, very important to have to, to be able to be sad and to uh, acknowledge the pain. Oh, yeah. But that's no. where I didn't feel like sticking forever. No. no. Mm, let me ask you something. Go for it. Um, because I think we, we've been into very different struggles right and the way we have like what we were what like the work we did who we worked with blah blah was very different um i don't know exactly we can find out some other time but in your political past have you come across the concepts of allyship and comradeship and what are your first takes on it if you think about it your mm-hmm. first free associations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, growing up in the context that I did, um, being politicized in that context, context, right? So we're talking about Southern California universities um, uh, following, like, let's say from 2009 to 2015. Um, this is where I first encountered the, the word allyship. And allyship, on the one hand, meant like to be in solidarity with someone, like who can we consider people to be like our friends and not our enemies. And then um, on the other hand, oftentimes that discourse of allyship was then also articulated to a kind of submissive discourse of like, if you want to be an ally, then you have to do this, 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 and that. And um, the way I've seen that is often like guilt-driven. And I'm not saying that this speaks for all discourses of allyship, because I think at the end of the day, you can articulate a shit ton of different practices to any kind of discourse. And so this is why I'm also a bit ambivalent about like, you know, problems with identity politics or problems with allyship, because at the end of the day, it depends what we're actually looking at. I will never be the one to give up the, the, to give up identity politics. So what I can talk about is that it's bullshit if it's dogmatic or if it's authoritarian or if it's moralistic or something, that's my critique, but it's never the identity politics because you could even, yeah. The question is, what is not identity politics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there, different topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, just just to say quickly that I think um, a lot of the problems that we associate with like um, dogmatic Marxism um, 
a lot of the shitty practices that one thinks of with that, you could also slap onto a number of different kind of groups that operate under discourses of identity politics. Sure, you know, like thanks. anything from sectarianism, um, authoritarianism, all of these different kind of things. Yeah, or if you consider being a worker, not just in some neutral, objective state of a person, but something that has, like, you have to raise the consciousness to be this, what else yeah. is it than identity building? But yeah. Yeah, 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 um, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so, you know, my, my, um, my experience with the, that discourse of allyship was often tied to a number of problematic discourses. At the same time, it felt that it was always like short-term and provisional, you know, like who's going to be my ally in this, our ally in this struggle. Um, and then the term comrade, obviously, like that was around for a while. But I feel it really blew up in the last like six years, seven years now. Um, so <laughs> I'm so old. Um, so you're like the same age as me. Anyways, uh, it's like the last seven years. And um, then on the one hand, like that really blew up in the US while I was already living in Germany. And so then people were talking about comrades and whatnot. And um, I had always been, like, previously I'd been in the habit of calling people compañero y compañera instead of allies. And that had the context of comrade, right? Because the idea is that we're actually on a long, like, walk together, like we're accompanying each other. And um, that accompaniment is not temporary or provisional, but it's rather based out of a kind of mutual commitment towards a common horizon. And... Um, This is what I would say is the difference between comrade and allyship. She's making a heart symbol over Zoom, just so you know, audience. <laughs> yeah, you should TikTok this right now. But um, <laughs> I'm trying to convince Daniel to... Uh, to become a TikTok stop. influencer. Yeah. <laughs> a cute communist. But um, I think that's a very appreciative, tactical... Um, approach to say allyship is something that we can seek in specific moments, in specific situations, and specific struggles in the constellations we have, like to find the spectrum and to see who do we win, who do we meet, mm -hmm. um, and that the other is something that is defined by the common horizon, right? And that's also something. If I think of these um, words, no one asked, but I'm still going to answer. Um, Please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, comrade is not being a comrade is not defined by who you are. It is not defined by the social categories of experience you're having and you're doing. Ooh. Whereas um, allyship often refers to people who do not share the same experience mm. that you're having. So the 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 question of um, experience and identity is already part of these uh, these words. And so I think... Um, the one is like kind of a subjective category and the other one more is often used as an objective category, right? Like objective allies. Or did I, did I lose you? No, I just don't know if you, if, we talk, if you talk about subjective and objective, whether I have, I think of the same... I think you got me, but I say subjective in terms of um, 
allies is um, in correlation with specific subject subjects like mm -hmm. who you are and yeah. blah 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 whereas comrades is something that has to do with the goals and the aims and the horizon mm -hmm. so it yeah. is yeah and um i think this makes very sure um, shows very clearly um what we all can agree on and that is that of course um to articulate the social differences we have we always have to affirm the categories that um, separate us like mm -hmm. we have to talk about um women and queers we have to talk about black and brown people blah 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 mm -hmm. otherwise we can't articulate ourselves to overcome all that but at the same time we need ideas that are um seeking for something that is beyond what we can think of right now so we also have to have a little taste of the society we want to live in and that's why we need we need um the awareness of an ally to understand that we are not all the same but we need the vision of a comrade to understand where we want to go Ooh. and this. <laughs> <laughs> and i think this is um this is the um the how they are intertwined and this is this is the balance we have to keep and whenever we feel whenever we discuss these um concepts as some like against each other instead of trying to find the synthesis i think we're making a mistake yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense that, that also leads me to the next question um when do you think it's important um to organize across difference and when is it not my first uh, hint is to say always so the mm -hmm. question is what does organize mean right Many times we are not organized among one line or one interest or one objective. So um, when I'm in a mixed gender, all gender group, I am with all those people, but still there is a stronger bond in specific moments with some people in the room than with others that might be bound to specific experiences we're making. Sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes not. Sometimes I'm just of a different opinion than all the other uh, women and queers in the room, and that's also fine. So I think struggle should be defined by where we want to go. And wh mm -hmm. whoever wants to take the same direction or explore the same area, or whoever shares the view on what I consider the problems are right now in the society we live in, is not only invited, but I'm committing myself to being with them and to struggling with them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the first... <laughs> first um, premises that I to have and see. Mm -hmm. um, but in all this, as we are part of the society we are in, we will reproduce the problems that we have in the society. Mm -hmm. And there it might be very, very helpful to be with people who understand the problem that you're having. Mm -hmm. And many, many times, we feel more comfortable with people who make the same experiences and that encourages us and gives us the feeling of freedom and safety to talk to people who also have the exp make experiences of racism and so on. But I actually think Donna Haraway has a good point by talking about this situated knowledge that there are collective experiences that lay in a specific place in society, like in migrant communities, for example, sticking with the mm -hmm. example of racism, but 
I do believe that you can, as a political being, as somebody who's striving for a very different society, as a comrade or as a communist, that you are able to dig deep into it and that the feeling of solidarity means that in parts you learn to identify more and better what the hustles of other people are. And, and by that, you can be just um, along uh, my side like other people. But I also think it's a very, very hard and difficult way and it, means, it needs a lot of trust. So mm -hmm. in a nutshell, I think it makes sense, depending on what the aim is, to be with all the people who share that. And I believe that um, no struggle is really only about an identity. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that sometimes we feel more safe with people and uh, that this helps. So even like talking about um, rents, for example, of course, racism and sexism are a structure um, when we talk about housing problems. But at the same time, what I'm looking for is a, is a, is a world where um, way more people would, um, would profit from organizing housing in a very different way. Yeah. And therefore, I want to welcome more people than just brown women. Yeah. Um, yeah, this brings up a, a number of different things. On the one hand, I feel that that's, um, I like to think that not every organization has to have the same kind of function in the ecosystem, right? And so, like, I think it's perfectly fine for, and I think it's good for the environment, for like the ecosystem in general, if people do organize along kind of like shared problems like or shared kind of problems that derive from their subjectivity, right? Like when you think about the, the Black Panthers or, um, you know, that whole kind of epoch, um, that was necessary in order to define problems that exist that other groups said didn't exist, right? Like, like when you think about airline workers, like women airline workers, you wanted to cut me off. Yes, I really do want to cut you off and I really do want to contradict but I'm totally trying to be patient until you finish your yeah. point so I can destroy okay, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can destroy it. I think it's fine to, to kind of have these moments in which people collect around a kind of shared subjectivity position. And that helps in being able to define the mechanisms of that kind of position. The challenge is then how do you, how do you transcend that and abolish those mechanisms? Um, which leads me to the Second point, if I may. But I think when um, there's, there's this friend of mine, uh, Manuela Sekna, who has a very good um, exercise. It's kind of like mapping your own ecosystem of care. And like at the first level, she asks, you know, what kind of, uh, at an individual level, who are the different people that you depend on for care and that you also provide care to, et cetera. And then at the second level, what are the kind of communities, like not imagined communities, but actual communities, et cetera. And then at the next level, it's like, what are the kind of institutions that allow that to happen? Like hospitals, schools, workplaces, et cetera. And then from there, what is the kind of natural world that makes even that possible? And so then you have like this web work that makes your own reproduction possible. And within that web work, there are a number of other groups that have different relationships to all those structures, but 
your entire reproduction is dependent on all of that. And so at some point, you have to basically interface with those other groups in order to be able to, to care as you would like to and to care for yourself and your communities as you would like to. As you mentioned sectarianism, you know, ism, like mm -hmm. thinking about others, and now you're talking about you have to interface, blah, blah. I think um, distinction in terms of being very busy, being distinct from others is self-referential and hardly ever has the transformational potential that we mm -hmm. want to see and have. I'm not saying you can't be a separatist and organize in a separatist way. I'm just saying if you're busy proving yourself, you're very different from society, you're very different from a party, you're very different from that movement, you're very different from that guy, from that white person, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It will, you will be, it will be you and your navel in the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's one point. The other is, um, I agree that not in, in how things are being transformed and whatever that is and however that works. I mean, there are so many different assumptions of how we actually get to the better place. But um, I do agree that different groups have different functions, different organizations have different functions. And of course, therefore, they have their own logics and they are legitimate in their specific setting and so on. What I was doing is, to talk about my context. And I think mm -hmm. uh, even among the struggles that I'm facing, among the politics that I'm doing, people stick with um, identities in a way that is sometimes not as necessary as they think. Mm -hmm. So for example, Hanau, a very, very cruel event in Germany where too many people died in a racist terror attack. Mm-hmm. It's very important to see. Okay, okay. For, the, for the purpose for the purposes of the audience, can you explain what happened in Hanau a bit more concretely? Yes, there was a guy who went into a shisha bar and shot the people there. And shisha bars in Germany are places where many times it's a specific context of class and race uh, mm -hmm. that you find there. So it was uh, only migrant uh, people who were shot. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very conscious racist attack by a person who had a manifest uh, affirming all this like yeah maybe that's enough for a first mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, we have to be very clear about who do we work with on what and I'm not saying that we should go to the social democratic party and try to convince uh, them because they are the ones in power and blah blah so I'm not try saying hey um, let's just do the lobby work and dis dismiss all the, um, the ambitions we have and try to be just very realistic. But also I'm saying um, sometimes it's very important to take the space, to, take the, to, uh, to be the voice out of a migrant perspective, out of a brown perspective, out of a whatever perspective there is, um, is needed and not being represented. And sometimes it's simply not. And I feel sometimes we fail in understanding where it is not necessary. Yeah. Um, and also, um, because you were talking about like specific needs people have and they organize themselves around it, blah, blah, shared interest. Nah, 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 nah. I agree. But you know what, what bothers me a lot is that 
we tend to have the perspective on identity politics that um, feminism is about women's issues. And, or me, me, like by now we understand that it's women and queers, you know, like trans, inter, non-binary, ace, gender, and so on people. I would hope. Uh, what? I would hope. And <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, let's not go there. But, um, <laughs> and also we tend to think that racism is an issue of non-white people. And I disagree. This is exactly what we talked about before when I said that, um, and this is what, what was uh, driving me when I said, um, what I'm working on is never just bound to my identity. I do believe that feminism is an, it's not an important, but a necessary tool to liberate all of us. And I do think that anti-racism is a very, very, it's, it's, if you're not anti-racist, I don't just think that your revolution will be crappy because it will be racist again. I do think you will not be liberated even if you're not suffering from racism. And I think yeah. this is, we do underestimate or we do not even understand the, the utopian and the transformational potential that we have in bound to marginalized communities and the experiences they're having. Let me give yeah. you one, one very plain example to make it more precise um, that I use many times. Um, people who are socialized as men in our society do not often make the, the experience of having very tender, warm, open, honest, deep conversations with people of the same gender, mm -hmm. right? Guys do not usually hang out doing the deep talk, mm -hmm. not without beer and soccer beforehand at least mm -hmm. and not in a group and not in a very casual way and not without low, not with low stakes and this is something very very this is very beautiful that mm -hmm. should be communal luxury that we all have mm -hmm. as one as something that that we live with and live from yeah and this is underestimated when we talk about feminism Sometimes in feminism, we have it a little by talking about toxic masculinity and how you can detox your masculinity by feminism or something. But I do believe this is bound to any other category too. Like even if it's uh, ableism or if it's racism or if it's trans um, hate and so on. I do believe that we learn best from those who are oppressed most, which does not mean that they are always right. That's really um, an incredible point, Verena. Because, um, like, on the one hand, like, I, I, I see the the, like, I, I would say I hold on to a kind of discourse of like, you know, people of the same problem should organize along that line in order to dissect the, the vicissitudes of that problem and the multiplicity of the mechanisms that create that problem. But at the same time, it's not just that group, right? It's also the, the other force in that group, like say women in a broad sense and cis dudes in a narrow sense, you know? Um, and like, when I think about like, like my interactions with Fordist men, um, like Fordist cis heterosexual men, um, the, the, the damage on their psyches of like inhabiting that subjectivity is just brutal. Like to see them, like to see my dad and to see like my, uh, like other, like dudes of that generation, like, yeah, they definitely benefited out, out of 
housewifeization, but like especially into old age and unable to live like post-work life because work is the only thing that gives them meaning. And then like being unable to even talk about that. They don't have the tools to talk about that. And it's really just sad to to see that. And I think this is now talking about like you just pointed out very nicely the 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 taste of liberation that you find in feminism, right? Mm -hmm. And the taste, because I think many people are like, oh, you can't like racism and um sexism are very different and patriarchal mm -hmm. structure, structures are different than white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. Um, so what I think what we can learn, so softness is something that feminism like is able to, um, to point out again as a strength, right? And mm -hmm. um, when it comes to migration, racism, I think borders are a nice... Um, symbol uh, of the damage we're doing to ourselves in racism so um people like the european fortress is basically locking themselves in they're building up their own prison no. they are locking themselves in it's not just locking out people locking out people always means to lock yourself in and by hating all the people who are different it is many times a form of envy that you feel towards the other ways of living, which might be more, seem more loud, more colorful, more whatever. And I'm not saying this in a, like an ethno-romanticized sense, but mm -hmm. um, um, we can all agree, I think, that Germany is not a place of lust and excess <laughs> and warmth. You know, this is not a fun place. For the for the audience, that's that was put very lightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there is there is Deutsche Vita and there is Deutsche Vita, you know, <laughs> and they have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> um, I think racism also means uh, overcoming racism means to overcome strict rules. Um, Anti-racism means that you break with law and order. Because you question the boundaries, the quest you question the, the art of living others bring along, you question your food, you question your music. Everything is very different when we have um, when we mix up <laughs> all of us and yeah. all the, the things we're having. And I think this is one of the potentials uh, that um, that there is to allow to be like allowing yourself to be without all the harshness and the hardness, but to find yourself um, in, in many different ways and to not stick with what you are and what you have and how you always did things. Like migration is, is very opposes being conservative because yeah. it means change. It means dynamics. It means movement. It means autonomy. And uh, I think this is why... Migration and anti-racism always mean to say yes to life because <laughs> life can never stick with, with borders and with categories and fixed boxes. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I don't have any more questions lined up. Do you have any questions lined up? Yes, let me go with the last question and then I think sure. and we can plan on your TikTok channel. Um, <laughs> 
your worst and your best experience in organizing across different what was the mm. best we did it what was the worst jesus this is how we fail um i would bring up perhaps two two instances in which we want something one was in the union back when i was a part of uh, united auto workers local 2865 which covered graduate student workers across the university of california system um we won a very good contract in 2014 that also won a lot of incredible stuff like um not only did we get like better bread and butter issues like uh higher wages but we were also able to secure nursing stations like on campus as a workers right because we argued that mothers are workers and we also argued that uh trans people are workers too so we need all gender restrooms as well and we won those as workers rights <clears throat> and that was like really awesome um to 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 have that win and whatnot but at the same time there were a bunch of incredibly uh fucked up dynamics that i saw and um among them was the way that people speaking from very specific subjectivity positions were able to speak for everyone of that subjectivity position in order to tell other people what to do and that was just basically a, a way to to gatekeep through tokenization and this analysis i completely attribute to a comrade of mine amra solomon um we had an interview with each other one time and she highlighted exactly this uh, gatekeeping through tokenization mechanism um that also hinges on white guilt like you can only do that if white people allow like give you the space to do that and so like no other comrade like stood up and was like stop that yeah, yeah but you know there is a difference between solidarity and white guilt you can do the same thing because either you're convinced or you just think i i shouldn't talk these are two very different attitudes toward the same outcome but yeah carry on yeah so there was um that experience and um that that was really crazy to see how uh how that was able to destabilize the organizational process like these kind of uh the the kind of allegations that specific individuals were able to wield would then just uh make people scared and at the same time um this was like another crazy thing that i saw was that Like I mean we all wanted to be anti-racist and we all wanted to be feminists and we all wanted to um abolish the wage relation etc and then that led to a kind of uh well we have to prefigure this right that means that we cannot be racist and we cannot be sexist etc um but like you said we 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 grow up in racist and patriarchal structures and so the tension that you have to 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 hold is difficult because um you cannot expect someone that hasn't studied the the vicissitudes and the multiplicities of these processes to walk into an organizational process and then not say something racist or something sexist um and so then they say something racist or sexist in a meeting and then Alicia Garza talks about this beautifully um in her in her recent book 
from she's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and she says like there's typically one or two things that happen in this situation. The first one, people ignore it, and then it alienates, um, you know, other people in the group um, that say are affected by racism or patriarchy, um, or recognize that they are affected by racism and patriarchy, right? Um, or on the other hand, they're greeted by a academic um, discourse on why everything they think is wrong. And they're presented why it's wrong and then all the subsequent like, and I will prove this by, you know, here are all my points of evidence. And then most likely, Garza says, and this is 100% true, they're either just, typically they will just nod their head, right? And be like, ah, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because they know that suddenly that's the rules of this social scenario, right? Like I walked into a place, Yes, and all what you're saying shows very clearly this is all not about intentions and where do we want to go. This is about right and wrong. This is about rules. This is about not what somebody's trying to be. This is about what they are saying and the words they're using, not what they're trying to express. And I'm not saying we shouldn't tell people that what they were saying was racist, no matter what they wanted to say. But I do think it makes a difference whether they wanted to say something racist or not. And we... We, we are so busy trying to find out what else is all racist instead of building the capacity to be able to deal with the situation where these things happen. Like, make it part of your calculation. There won't be no unracist political struggle. Now, make it part of the calculation. What do we do in case this shit happens? Like, how... How do we want to deal with this? And I feel this is very, still very underrepresented. Yeah, yeah. And I, I absolutely uh, agree with this. Like um, the practice to develop an anti-racist feminist organizational process ultimately culminated in policing, like a practice of policing, speech and actions. And this was then articulated to like social media. So then everyone would look at other people's social media And then there was the threat that if I say something wrong on social media, this could spill over into my real world life at the academy. And then people will think I'm a racist. So really what that did was just scare the shit out of everyone. And everyone was scared of each other. See, and this is what I think rules and fear are always an indication that you're not on the way to utopia. Yeah, yeah. And so that was uh, that was definitely one of the and this was also crazy because there was like very, very few white people that were involved in this process. Um, and it was like racialized uh, and gendered people that were doing this to each other um, in the name of anti-racism and feminism. Yeah, you know, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And so then just the, the, the good example was um, something like I participated in the Deutsche Bodenkohn-Eichen campaign here in Germany, in Berlin. And um, what I thought was very interesting about that process was that it allowed it fought over a shared need. Like the demand was we need to expropriate landlords that own more than 3,000 buildings or properties in order to then um, put that under collective ownership. And there was like a general like meta narrative that the campaign produced like say on social media or on the news But in terms of how the actual groups that were a part of this campaign organized themselves, like the talking points 
were never this kind of abstract thing, but like it was like queer people going to queer community and talking about how this demand will also solve queer problems. And it was migrant community talking to migrant community about how this demand will also help solve some migrant problems. And I think that that's the way to, to really go about it is to think about, okay, we all need to kind of conduct siege warfare on this particular institution. And the way we talk about it will depend, like we talk to the communities affected by that institution in the, the ways that they experience it. And we don't try to, you, you want to cut in, I can see that over the Zoom. Yes, and the other way around. You know, we both love dialectics. So it is yeah. that we, in shared needs, we always see the particular, and in the particular, we always see the, the universe. Exactly, that's 100%. We, yeah. yeah, and so that's it. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to close it on that pretty good statement. Okay. Um, but, but what about you? Do, you? do you want to take a stab at when you've seen the, the best case, or worst case of working across different? Actually, no. I feel your uh, stories were pointing out very great the, the challenges that me and many people can relate with. I could. And so. Uh, so I, feel, I, I feel you summed it up perfectly right now at the end. So we should just shut the fuck up and yeah. let the audience. Bye, people. <laughs> <laughs> Ruminate on that. Uh, Verena, um, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, it was very nice to work with you in the trend the School of Transnational Activism's Academy of Migrant Organizing. And um, I really hope to keep working with you um, even as this process closes. I'm sure we will. It's beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much.